This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. This week, rebels take hold of Tripoli, Gaddafi in hiding. What next for Libya? Gaddafi no! Gaddafi no good! Gaddafi no good! We're in the death throes of this regime, and there's no doubt about that. We are here. This is our country. This is our country. This is our people. And we live here and we die here. BFBS. Headlines. The Foreign Secretary has warned fighting in Libya is not yet over, though William Hague has insisted Colonel Gaddafi's regime is finished. He was speaking as rebel forces exchanged heavy fire with pro-Gaddafi loyalists outside the former Libyan leader's hometown of Sirte. In Tripoli, medical teams are struggling to cope with a steep rise in the number of casualties. The hospitals already weakened by the sanctions imposed against the Gaddafi regime. The Ministry of Defence has said the Red Arrows can start flying again. The RAF's Hawk jets have been given the green light, despite the death of a Red Arrows pilot in a crash at an air show in Bournemouth last weekend. In Austria, police are investigating reports that a man locked up his two mentally handicapped daughters and raped them repeatedly over more than 40 years. The women are said to have escaped after pushing over their father, who's now 80. And there's been a 900-a-day increase in the number of people being taken to hospital for drink-related problems in the last five years. It's a rise of a quarter. Muammar Gaddafi was 27 when he seized power in Libya in a coup in 1969. 42 years later, as a rebel uprising against him took hold, he insisted he was going nowhere. No one against us. Against me for what? Because I am not president. They love me, all my people with me. They love me all. They, they will die to, to protect me and my, my people. In fact, as rebel forces poured into Tripoli this week, his people came out to welcome them and celebrate the apparent end of Gaddafi's dictatorship. I'm very, very happy, you know. Gaddafi, no! Gaddafi, no good! Gaddafi, no good! By dawn on Monday morning, the rebels claimed to hold 90% of the Libyan capital and to have captured Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam. Yet, 24 hours later, he appeared in the city, vowing to defeat the forces lined up against his father's rule. This is our country. This is our country. This is our people. And we live here and we die here. And we are going to win. Because we, the people are with us. That's why we are going to win. But while Gaddafi vows to fight on to martyrdom or victory, the rebels who for six months have fought against him insist he has nowhere to go. So he plays his last card, his last game, and even his army, they lose control. There is a small pocket of resistance, but we didn't call them resistance. We tried to overcome them, that's all. But the city is under the siege and the control of the rebels, the Libyan free people. And as Gaddafi's compound fell and the rebels raised their flag, the Foreign Secretary, William Hague, warned this is only the beginning. We're in the death throes of this regime, and there's no doubt about that. But it's still a difficult and dangerous situation. There are many, many weapons out there. There are thousands of people who were, until very recently, being paid by Gaddafi in his army or as mercenaries to support the regime, uh, many of whom may still be at large. Uh, so I think still some difficult and dangerous days. 
So, six months after the Libyan uprising began and five months after Britain and other NATO countries launched their operation to protect civilians, Colonel Gaddafi's four-decade rule in Libya is seemingly over. But what next? How can the rebels keep Libya stable as it adjusts to life without its dictator? And exactly what role did British forces play in the fall of Gaddafi? Questions we'll try to answer in this special edition of Sit Rep. Well, as ever, I'm joined by BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Um, to the eyes of the world, it looked like this happened very quickly, the rebels storming into Tripoli. Is that the reality of what happened? I don't think so. I think what we saw was a gradual build-up and then the momentum took off. And once certain towns had been secure, and once the groups had come out from the western mountains, you could actually bring your forces together in some sort of pincher, pincer movement. The other side of it is that the command and control systems had been successfully degraded at the very, very least. Uh, forward air controllers, probably quite on the spot, uh, targets well identified. And so what you get is, apart from bravado, uh, and if you look at some of those guys with their guns going for the compound, for example, terribly brave or stupid or whatever, but appearing not to be in uh, people not commanding them, but they were well commanded. And so what you get is this, and always do, is this last advance, this last surge, this fast run at the target. Um, and also remember that up until that point, every time the rebels had moved forward, come nightfall or whatever, they had to move back. They had to do that to get two things or three things. One was rest. Second was ammunition. And they shoot off a lot of ammunition. And the third was food. And so you haven't got a, what we would have is, say, a logistics unit or logistics element right up with them all the time and then just sit around for a few days and wonder what was happening. And so it was that last surge which made it appear that it all happened very quickly, but it didn't. Well, also with me this week is the director of the Defence and Security Think Tank, the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark. Professor Clark, good to speak to you today. Um, mm. Only a few weeks ago, everybody was talking about a stalemate in the conflict. Were they all wrong then? Well, some of us never believed that it was a stalemate because this was always going to be a relatively, relatively dynamic conflict. And I was just uh, checking yesterday that the, I mean, the Sunday Times reported as long ago as the 10th of July that there was a very vigorous underground network in Tripoli. And it was clear from the beginning of July that something was building up around Tripoli. I mean, I, I, I was wrong in, in the sense that I believed that this would all come to a head at, by the end of July or by mid-July. I didn't think it would take this long. But I'm not at all surprised at the way it's come to a head, the way Christopher has just described it. These things always seem to happen in a helter-skelter when a lot of other things have been, have been prepared. So clearly the, 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 the sense of stalemate was a very superficial one because actually... The, the three fronts that were being fought over in, in Brega, in Misrata, and in the Nafusa Mountains had actually created a broken-backed Gaddafi force structure. So he couldn't communicate with his forces. He had people fighting, but without any central direction. And it's pretty clear in those situations that when defeat starts, it just goes on and on. And uh, Gaddafi ended up with a lot of um, African mercenaries working for him, fighting for him. And, and when things get desperate, mercenaries don't die for people. They disappear. They're there to do professional fighting. So the mercenaries don't go in for last, last stands anywhere. Indeed. And how much support do you think there still is for Gaddafi at the moment? 
there's certainly some, but uh, I mean, it's not particularly tribal. Uh, people talk about the tribal basis, but he never had much tribal support. He played the tribes off against each other. There's the Gaddafi tribe, indeed, but I mean, they were never uh, completely behind him. People have been very wary about about the support that, that he has. He undoubtedly has some diehard loyalists who are people who s presumably suspect that they would not be treated fairly under a new government or that they feel that they, that they, they have so much of a case to answer that they have nothing to lose by continuing to fight. But I also think that a lot of people are fighting because partly they're on autopilot. Uh, and if you look at, at the, uh, the stories that are coming out of the Rixos Hotel now, this desperate situation that the, the journalists were in the Rixos Hotel when they ran out of low-calorie tonic for the G&Ts and so on, the, <laughs> the, the fact is they were, being, they were being held in the Rixos Hotel by, t by two guys who were, frankly, not very bright. And uh, Saif Gaddafi, the son, had said, you hold them there, you make sure they stay there. And they just didn't know what was going on. And I suspect that a lot of this fighting is, is taking place because a lot of individuals simply don't know what's going on. And I suspect it will, it will die down quite quickly. I, I would also say that, that I know for a fact that NATO has intensified its operations. There, there are a lot of operations. It's running you know, about 120, 140 operations a day. Mm. In the last couple of days, it's run 160-odd operations. And they're turning their attention fairly strongly now to CERT and to Saba because I think there's a sense that, that the people there have got to realise that there is absolutely no hope in fighting on. Indeed. Well, well, NATO's had to walk a tightrope since the start of operations over Libya. Its mandate is solely to protect civilians, not to help the rebels bring down Gaddafi's regime. And Secretary-General Agnes Faure-Rasmussen insists that's exactly what they've done. Our goal throughout this conflict has been to protect the people of Libya. And that is what we're doing, because the future of Libya belongs to the Libyan people. And it is for the international community to assist them. So, now Gaddafi's regime has fallen, when will the NATO operation end? Our reporter James Hurst has spoken to the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox. Well, NATO has been dedicating ISTAR. Uh, intelligence and reconnaissance facilities uh, to the hunt for Gaddafi and other elements of the regime leadership. Uh, Britain was also instrumental last night in the increased NATO activity across the country. Uh, there are still pockets of resistance, there are still command and control elements of the regime that we need to tackle. We don't want to see the regime concentrate itself in either South Tripoli or in CERT and we need to ensure that they are unable to do so. So we continue with our uh, main effort being through that NATO uh, attack on the elements of the regime which continue to resist. If British forces identified where Colonel Gaddafi is, what would they do with that information? Well, of course, we would want to ensure that such information was passed to the NTC. This has to be a, a Libyan-led uh, operation. Increasingly now, we're going to see that this is about NATO giving cover um, to the, the new government uh, and authority in Libya to ensure that those elements of the regime which continue to threaten them um, are, are hounded down and destroyed. You've made clear that the job of Operation Unified Protector, Operation Alamy, is not yet finished. What criteria need to be met for those forces who have been working on those operations to come home? Well, we have to fulfil what we set out under the UN resolution, which is that the civilian population are safe. It's clear that there are elements of the regime in, in CERT, in South Tripoli and other parts of the South that continue to resist. This was a well-supplied, well-organised regime, had 40 years of brutalising its own people and was very good at it. The, uh, therefore, it's 
are unreasonable, I think, to expect that they would simply melt away overnight. And while there's been understandable euphoria in recent days, it has to be matched by a sense of realism about the likely behaviour of the uh, rump of that regime. So I think we'll have a, a few days yet where we see continued resistance by the regime. And while that is continuing, NATO will continue uh, to ensure that we degrade their military capability. But once there's no sign of resistance, is, is that it? Well, then it becomes an issue for the UN to potentially pass another resolution. That means that uh, OP4 of the UN resolution, uh, under which we actually take the military action, is rescinded. Or it would be up to the, uh, the NAC in NATO to determine whether or not they felt that the mission itself had been accomplished. We're, we're some time away from either of those. Looking to the future, if the National Transitional Council asks for continued military support, what would we be prepared to do for that? Well, if they require as a new sovereign authority to get international support, they would have to ask the United Nations for that. The UN has already plans for stabilisation and protection, a, a bridging force. Um, that would mean that it needed to be drawn, I think, primarily from uh, Arab countries in the region, from the African Union. This has to be a regional now uh, solution to the Libyan problem, and I don't think we want it to appear as any uh, imposition of any Western views on Libya. So there's no question of British boots on the ground. Would we be prepared to send in, say, military trainers? Well, we've had advisers on the ground. Uh, I've I've uh, been saying for some months now that in terms of communications, logistics, improving the chain of command, we've had military advisers there with the NTC, uh, enabling them to make the best use of the assets they had, given that we could not supply them with weapons under the arms embargo. Uh, given that we've built up those relationships, it would be logical for us to continue to provide them with that sort of training. Winning the war is one thing, winning the peace is another. <coughs> it's a phrase that's been used many times. but. It, it would be wrong, wouldn't it, to let this fall apart again? I think the international community, having come this far in helping the Libyan people be free from the tyranny of Gaddafi, now needs to help with rebuilding. One of the things that we have to do as a matter of urgency is to ensure that the frozen assets, considerably large sums of money, are now freed up. We do have a problem with South Africa at the present time blocking that. The view of the South African government is they don't want to take sides in this. I think it's very clear to anybody that the Libyan people have taken a clear side and they've chosen freedom and their own self-determination. And given that that was very much once a struggle in South Africa itself, I hope that they will change their minds now and support the rest of the international community and see the unfreezing of the assets that will help the Libyan authorities rebuild their own country. The Defence Secretary, Liam Fox. Well, Professor Michael Clark from Rusi is still with me, as is Christopher Lee. Um, Christopher, we heard the Defence Secretary there talking about a regional solution, saying there would be no boots on the ground or British boots. So if the Libyan people did ask specifically for international help, we won't be among the nations providing it. No. Uh, last week, uh, Ban Ki-moon, the uh, UN Secretary General, said that this was probably going to be a regional uh, peacekeeping force. Um, here, Liam Fox there sort of complaining about the Africans uh, vetoed the UK-US attempt in the United Nations to unfreeze assets. Well, he should have thought of that, shouldn't he? Or the government should have thought of that before they, they elbowed the Africans out of the whole debate. There's a meeting in Addis Ababa So they're right tomorrow. to not hold out on that, are they? Ah, crikey. Well, they may not be right to do so, but they're hacked off. Now, if you think about it, which African country are you going to get to do this? Well, Ghana's very good at doing peacekeeping jobs. Will the Libyans want a Ghanaian general? 
to do that. The, he says, well, look, get, the Arab, get some Arab nations. Uh, they'll come and do a policing job. A lot of those Arab nations he'd like to come do a policing job have got concerns of their own. Uh, Professor Clark, how much help do you think the Lib- Libyan people are going to need in keeping stability within the country in terms of intervention from outside? Well, maybe not so much. I mean, we're not talking about a rerun of of, uh, Iraq here because uh, it's entirely likely that uh, a number of members of the the police and the army who've just taken their uniforms off and melted away for a while can be reconstituted quite quickly and and probably entirely competently. Um, The the country is not in a state of chaos. I mean, like Iraq, it's a rich country. And if the 100 billion or so of assets can be unfrozen, I'm sure it will be at some point, just not as quickly as we want, then there is scope for plenty of investment in Libya. Um, I mean, what what Libya needs is is an immediate um, transition plan. So security is the most important thing, and that means reconstituting army and police. Now, police might be easier to reconstitute in Libya's case than army um, because of Gaddafi's policy of constantly weakening the army. Um, But that needs to be reconstituted. And there may be, if if we're talking about some sort of peacekeeping force or policing auxiliary force, then it probably wouldn't need to be there for very long. But the the medium term is that they need employment. So one needs to think of of ways of helping with uh, trade access into Europe and in helping uh, develop the technical requirements of, of investment to give as many of the, uh, the, 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 the younger Libyans good prospects of success. The, the one thing that's bad for a revolution is a sense after two or three months that all the bread prices have doubled or tripled because subsidies have been taken off and there's still no jobs. If you can address that, then people start to have some real faith in the future. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit on the Forces Station. BFBS. Still to come this week, can the rebels hold Libya together? What's NATO's role now Gaddafi's gone? And what does it mean for the uprising in Syria? Key to the rebels' success has been access to intelligence on the strength and location of Gaddafi forces. It's reported they not only got satellite images, but also snippets of phone calls between senior Libyan officials with vital information about shortages of food and ammunition. British forces have played a key role in that intelligence gathering, with the RAF's Sentinel R1 spy plane based in Cyprus providing crucial information. Our reporter, Kath Brazier, has been on board. When I arrive at 906 Expeditionary Air Wing HQ, last-minute engineering checks are being carried out as the Sentinel crew receive their mission and safety briefs. It's the early hours of the morning when I walk out to the aircraft before taking off into the night sky. Next stop, the no-fly zone. The airborne mission commander, Flight Lieutenant Rob, works alongside the two image analysts in the rear of the plane. Our mission for tonight is to look for pro-Gad or anti-Gaddafi convoys or billing points so we can report back to NATO headquarters. Through the darkness, the lights of Tripoli can be clearly seen. And not long after we arrive on station, we hear on the radio that fast jets have been tasked against targets to the south of the city, bringing home how real this all is. The Sentinel is patrolling at almost eight miles up. Even from these heights, the airborne standoff radar, ASTA for short, can produce images of startling clarity, as Flight Lieutenant Rob explains. The aircraft has a dual-mode radar. One mode is used to track vehicles, and one, the other mode is used to take imagery uh, on the ground. 
on board we can identify vehicles and potentially types of vehicles but at the moment with the situation especially over Tripoli and in Libya generally it's very hard to pick out which side people are on. The IAs have their eyes glued to the screens for hours on end. Flight Lieutenant Dave explains what they've been looking at. The first part of the mission was uh, quite a bit quieter but we were able to identify some changes of pattern of life. Uh, there's, there's a route that's no longer being used and uh, we pass that information on to other people so they can look and see why that route is no longer being used, see if there's some intelligence value in that. Uh, secondly, we've also found a, uh, a large uh, convoy movement, or so a pair of convoy movements, which we've passed on to other assets who have uh, since been able to go on and uh, positively ID what we've actually been looking at on the radar. As we start to head home, there's a request from KAOC, Command Air Operations Centre, for the Sentinel to remain on station for an extra 15 minutes. After almost 10 hours in the air, what fuel they have remaining is a top priority. It's the responsibility of the flight deck, including pilot Flight Lieutenant Chris, to keep a close eye on this. We have an idea of a limit to which we would fly the jet to in the, uh, in the area concerns, knowing that we have enough fuel to get back legally with a sensible amount of fuel for diversion purposes and for any other reason which we might want to carry more fuel for. What makes a successful mission? Landing. <laughs> Good humour is essential on the flight. After all, these guys are on operations. It's a long old haul and every minute counts. Squadron leader Hector Hillman's been officer commanding 906 EAW for the last two months. People get on and there's lots of wit and repartee and, and rapport. Still getting the job done, but just making it more fun for everybody whilst achieving the aim. The Sentinel itself never sleeps, but another crew will manage the next sortie. For now, it's job done and time for a rest until this crew return to do it all again in less than 48 hours. Kath Brazier reporting. Well, Christopher Lee is still with me, as is the director of RUSI, Professor Michael Clark. Um, Michael Clark, how much will NATO have known in advance about the rebel plan to advance on Tripoli, and to what extent were they directly involved in it? Oh, I think the answer is quite a lot on both counts. Um, it, it's been pretty clear from what's been sort of leaking out and coming out in bits and pieces. It, it was that from about the beginning of July, uh, NATO forces were using their intelligence assets and some of the special force people on the special forces people on the ground to do quite a, a lot of planning. It, it was clear that that they felt that the uh, the people uh, in the uh, Nafusa Mountains, the, these Berber um, groups who um, had a, 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 the best chance, in a sense, of reaching Tripoli, that uh, they were were worth reinforcing and they could be reinforced both from the air and across the Tunisian border, and that if that could be coordinated with an uprising in Tripoli, uh, then that, that actually would, was the best way forward, rather than try and think in terms of, of forces moving from Brega and Misrata and so on. That was a long, long way to go. So there was a clear plan. And although these troops, uh, these, these are guerrillas, uh, rebels, were not particularly expert, you can see just by looking at them in, in, on TV pictures, they don't really, they're not using their weapons ter terribly well, they're not being tactically clever and so on. But that doesn't mean to say they were disorganized. They're really quite well organized. And once NATO had had, um, had put its faith behind that, and I think there was a big push to do that during July, if only because Britain and France were worried about this operation dragging on into September with all that that would imply. So there was a major effort to put in on the ground whatever would make a real difference without being seen to put troops 
onto the ground as such. Uh, and it was really quite well coordinated. I think we'll, we'll learn a lot about this in the next few months. And I think the more we learn, the more we will find out that uh, NATO's hand and Britain and France's hand and America's hand was really strongly behind everything that's happened in the last week. Indeed. And Christopher, the suggestions of advisors we sent to help the rebels, tipping them off about targets. And we heard the Defence Secretary talking about uh, NATO planes actually helping in the search for Gaddafi and his regime members now. How does that square with the NATO mandate, which is about NATO won't like it, will they? I mean, NATO, NATO took me on the phone to Fox's office. They say, hey, listen, we don't go targeting anybody, even Gaddafi. But the other thing is the, the use of special forces or ex-special forces and intelligence gathering. Go right back to the beginning of this. Started when we were getting people out of the oil fields. Uh, the getting the emigres out uh, and so that's particularly important but it's also included things that you perhaps won't even think about for example that compound who built the compound where are the plans of the compound because if you're going to take a you couldn't take an aircraft and you want to smack it you want and how much information could be gathered about that oh a tremendous amount i mean i happen to know that the the plans went from germany about this, because the German engineers worked on it. The plans for the compound went, to, uh, went from Germany. Uh, they went into London. They went down to the targeting in Italy. And then you knew what you were hitting. You knew, even knew where the tunnels were. So if you wanted to put in people or direct people who might want to get in there and be in danger every time you go into a tunnel or, or go into a close area like this, you actually had... The, the plans, including the thickness of the materials, how they were reinforced, etc. But I think the most important thing is the way they have coordinated to attack the command and control system of Gaddafi's forces, and that has become very important. The challenge now for Libya's rebels is to govern a country that for more than 40 years has been under the control of a dictator. And for the NATO countries that back the rebels, their challenge is to avoid a repeat of the chaos in Iraq that followed the fall of Baghdad. Western leaders have called that catastrophic success, but the Prime Minister is insisting that won't happen. Diplomatically, we have a strong mission already in Benghazi, consisting of foreign office, military and aid specialists, and we will establish a British diplomatic presence in Tripoli as soon as it is safe to do so. This will include stabilisation experts who've been planning for this moment with the NTC for months. Michael Clark, we're promising to help Libya's transition. Where do you draw the line? How do you help without dictating and getting too involved? The help we've been providing so far has been lots of discussion, lots of, as the Prime Minister implied, there's a great deal of discussion going on with representatives of the NTC. But of course discussion is not planning because planning, you can only do very preliminary planning until you really know what the situation is and when you're going to be able to start and that's you know we, they start literally from uh, from sometime later this week or early next week there's quite a lot that, that britain can do in terms of uh, advising on how to get a, you know the one and a half uh, billion barrel, million barrels of oil back on stream uh, every day um, and reconstructing that that market uh, the oil market and there's quite a lot that, that britain can do particularly in the the area of security sector reform, as we were mentioning earlier on, in, in offering some advice and some technical help 
on uh, running a, a police force and possibly a, uh, a gendarmerie which might be useful, more useful than a, a standard army for Libya for the immediate next two or three years. So there's quite a bit of stuff that we could talk about, but we, as you imply, we must be very careful not to try to dictate to the Libyans. This is up to them now, and that's been the watchword from the very beginning of this. Well, as far as Gaddafi is concerned, the rebels have offered a million pound award for anyone who captures or kills him, assuming he isn't killed. The next question will be, what should happen to Libya's former dictator, Christopher Lee? Uh, if, he, if he's alive, he's supposedly going on trial. I find it fascinating. Is he going to be tried in a criminal court, an international criminal court, for the events since February? If so, that's pretty straightforward. Or is the ambition to try him... The question is whether Libyans will hand him over. Or well, if that's get another him. side of it. I mean, they've said, yes, we will do that, but will they? I mean, will... You see, going back to something Mike Clark was talking about, um, uh, actually, how you organise people. Uh, the biggest task is the Libyan leadership, the new leadership itself, to actually control the factions, the military, etc. So you get Gaddafi, and as I say, if, you, if, if you're going to nick him for the what's been going on since February straightforward. But just supposing somebody decides that he has been a villain for 42 years, then his lawyers, they'll say, right, we'll call George Bush and uh, Tony Blair, people like this, as character witnesses. It's an, it's an interesting After all, we've got wonderful <laughs> photographs and hugging each other. It's an interesting predicament that would be. Um, Professor Michael Clark, we've already heard, uh, seen protesters on the streets in Syria chanting that President Assad will be next. Do you think this week's events in Libya will have a knock-on effect there? I think they'll have a knock-on effect on the streets of Syria because it proves that old autocrats can't hold on forever. And given that President Assad has turned his army out across the country against the population, when you do that, you cross a Rubicon. There's no way back, although it might take a very long time. There is no way back uh, once the army are on the streets against people in general, not just against a particular section of, of people. So in that respect, it will have an effect. Will it have an effect on our willingness to do more about Syria? No, I don't think it will. I mean, Syria is a completely different case to Libya. We involved ourselves in Libya because the Arab League and the United Nations specifically requested urgent action. There's no sign of them doing that over Syria. Christopher, as things stand, we've been talking about the Arab Spring, cast ourselves 10 years hence. How will we look back on this period in history, do you think? Um, cast herself 10 years hence would be very, very difficult because the people that are vulnerable now, supposedly the Saudis, um, certainly what's been going on in Yemen, uh, Syria, only 2,000 dead, you know. I mean, that sounds a terrible thing to say, but it's only 2,000 dead, and so far uh, Assad is in, is in control. The people that can actually resolve that are probably people like the Turks, etc. But this uh, spring is not over. And that's the thing we've got to remember. Right. Well, that is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, Director at the Royal United Services Institute, and, of course, to Christopher Lee. If you've any views on this week's events in Libya or anything else, do get in church. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. And if you missed any of this week's programme, you can listen again at our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. I'll be back next week, but for now, from me, Kate Chabo, thanks for listening and goodbye. This is Zip Rap on BFBS.